Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm Mandy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vose. This is episode number 12 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about The Godfather on your Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli podcast. This is a movie that my whole life people have been telling me that I need to watch, and I just never did. I've never really been a fan of what I perceive to be gangster movies. I always assumed that it was some kind of, you know, quote, guy movie that I would hate, and so it wasn't something I ever even considered watching. And so far on the podcast, we've talked about films that I've watched for years, films that are important to me, films that I have this huge adoration for. Today, we're going to discuss my favorite film. I I can talk and point to uh, The Matrix or Superman films that I would say, oh, these are in my top three, you know, best films ever. But The Godfather is is the pinnacle of them all. I saw it as a teen. I read the book as soon as I'd watched the film. I bought the soundtrack as soon as I could. I've even traveled uh, to see the film at a cinema in Leeds with my then girlfriend, who pretty much hated it, but she was partially sighted, so she couldn't tell any difference between the white men in dark suits with very dark hair, which was probably fair and I should have thought about beforehand. (laughs) So it's fair to say that you would have been very disappointed had I hated this movie. If you'd hated this film, I could have understood why, because there's not a huge amount emotionally to grok onto and, and engage with, and that's part of why you go to film and enjoy it so much. That is true. There, there was emotion in, in this film. I mean, I did tear up a couple, at le- on two occasions at least, I teared up in this movie. So Poor horsey. Nah, it wasn't the horse. <laughs> Poor cannoli. <laughs> <laughs> No, they took the cannoli, so it wasn't that either. (laughs) Shall I dive into some history and production info? Please do. Godfather is based on the novel of the same name, written by Mario Puzo, and it was released in 1972. Directed by Francis Ford Coppola, it was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, winning three Best Picture, Best Actor for Marlon Brando's portrayal of the eponymous Don, and Best Adapted Screenplay. It lost out in a lot of categories to Cabaret, which was the other big film released that year that uh, had a lot of success at the Oscars. It was also the highest grossing film ever until the release of Jaws three years later, and it currently sits 25th best grossing film of all time when adjusted for inflation. The Godfather is considered one of the greatest films ever made. It regularly comes in the top one or two on any list of the top films. It's often paired with uh, equally great films, Casablanca, The Empire Strikes Back, Citizen Kane, or even its own sequel, The Godfather Part 2. I think it's a travesty that of that list of movies, I have only seen two of them. Well, we know you haven't seen The Godfather Part 2. Correct. I have also not seen Citizen Kane. Yeah. I did watch Casablanca, but I was very underwhelmed by it and don't understand why it is in this list. Perhaps it's a film of its time. You compare it to other things, the the, the way movies were made and the, and the detail they put into what perceivably a sort of detective romance film. And it's just hands above everything else. In the same way, The Godfather was so different from any gangster film made at the time. The Matrix then pushed on action films when it came out. Lord of the Rings did the same to epic battles films. Fair enough. Who knows? That's my defense. Citizen Kane, Godfather Part 2, put him on the list. (laughs) Um, The line, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse, is also deemed the second best movie quote of all time by the American Film Institute. It's after Gone with the Winds, Frankly, My Dear, I Don't Give a Damn. So this is a significant film. It is, because there were so many quotes in this movie that I've heard and had no idea this is where they came from. And so that's just an example of how much it has permeated our culture. 
yeah, any anyone who's watched a decent number of Simpsons episodes has seen a lot of the major episodes of the God major moments of the Godfather. Oh, well, I didn't watch the Simpsons either. So okay, <laughs> put all of the Simpsons on the list. <laughs> Eight hundred and sixty-three thousand episodes of the Simpsons. Don't. <laughs> this is such a major film. There are many fascinating stories about the production, about the reception, about its history. Paramount bought the option for, to, for the book when Mario Puzo had only written about 100 pages of it. Francis Ford Coppola was the 13th director to be offered the job, and even he initially turned it down when he couldn't finish the book. He called it a popular, sensational novel and pretty cheap stuff. Marlon Brando was high on Coppola's list for the role of Don Vito Corleone, but following a few poorly received films before this and a reputation for bad behaviour, the studio looked at a lot of other actors, including Orson Welles and Laurence Olivier. Eventually, they required Marlon Brando to audition, and they had him offer a bonding guarantee that he wouldn't actually disrupt the production. I read that one of their initial stipulations for Brando to be in the movie was that he would do the movie for free, but they took that out once they saw his screen test. Yeah, you want to pay one of your top actors to actually deliver a performance, whatever you think about his uh, off-camera things. He has been in a lot of major films and won a lot, of, a lot of awards. So when he brings it, as he does in The Godfather, he's worth having and he's worth throwing some money out to do so. Do you know how much he was paid? I, I never saw that listed anywhere, but I wonder what it is on the scale of Bruce Willis's. <laughs> Um, I don't know how much he was paid. I know how much Al Pacino was paid. Mm. Uh, Al Pacino was paid $35,000. Bargain. <laughs> You're going to have many Al Pacinos for one Bruce Willis. Right. <laughs> uh, but I don't recall seeing uh, what Marlon Brando was paid. Okay. Probably a bit more. Probably. But probably not much more because Diane Keaton and James Caan were also paid about the same as Al Pacino. Mm. Uh, I can understand that because they were all not necessarily unknown quantities, but not major quantities at that time. Al Pacino actually left the mafia comedy The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight to play Michael Corleone with only a few weeks to prepare before filming started. James Kahn had lined up to play Michael already, um, so he was given the role of Santino's Sonny Corleone. And Robert De Niro, who was going to play poorly in The Godfather, left his role to take over the role that Pacino would have played in the mafia comedy. Robert De Niro is just all over the place because he did also screen tests to play Sonny. Mm. And I thought that was awesome. There's a YouTube video of it out there, which I will link to in the show notes just because I actually really liked it and almost prefer Robert De Niro to James Caan for that role. Oh, terrific. <laughs> and interestingly enough, uh, Martin Sheen was also up to play Michael. And there's a YouTube video of that screen test as well. And that just blew my mind because when I think of Martin Sheen, I think of Jed Bartlett. And so I can't possibly yeah. imagine him playing, you know, this New York gangster. Could we have had Michael walking out of the restaurant after the dinner with Salazzo, putting his jacket on <laughs> as he walks out in that way that Jed Bartlett does? <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, it just it blew my mind. <laughs> Didn't Terrific. expect that at all. Paramount looked to save some money when they were making the film, and they'd hoped to set it in modern-day Kansas City so they could have cheaper location shoots and match it with some of the backlots they already had in, in existence. Because Kansas City has so much mafia activity. <laughs> yeah, all that mafia activity. We're going to get letters from people in Kansas like, well, actually, I'm <laughs> gone of the... I, I'm lost. I can't carry this joke on. Stereotypical <laughs> Kansas family name. <laughs> the, the Gales. I'm Don Gale. <laughs> 
little Wizard of Oz reference for you there. <laughs> yes, yes, thank you. I have seen that, and I did get that okay, reference. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Marlon Brando sitting there with, oh, I'm going to get you and your pretty and your little dog. <laughs> They wanted to set it in Kansas City. Coppola argued the case uh, that it should stay as the book. Uh, He was eventually allowed to shoot on location for the majority of the film in New York. When the book was released, it was tremendously successful. It had weeks and weeks on the bestseller lists, which gave him even stronger arguments for uh, an ever-increasing budget. Uh, Once the film was shot, he he was under pressure to deliver a shorter running time and he delivered one just over two hours. But uh, there's a quote somewhere that he effectively delivered them a trailer. So they made him re- return it back to the three hours he envisioned it as. So I also read today that they had intended to release this movie with an intermission because it was so long. Hmm. But ultimately, they decided not to because they thought it would diminish the, the pacing and the suspense of the film. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Where would you put it? You'd probably put it somewhere around the the traveling to Sicily or the war in the middle. Yeah, I was thinking probably right after Michael has his little killing spree. Yes. Is spree a two? Is that not like five or six? Who knows? Listeners, tell us what a spree is. (laughs) (laughs) Marlon Brando was given the Oscar for Best Actor. He did not attend the ceremony that year. He sent Sachin Littlefeather from the American Indian Movement to decline the award in protest of Hollywood's misreputation of American Indians, and particularly the siege at the time at Wounded Knee. It's one of the the very famous boycotts of the Oscars. Al Pacino that year also boycotted the Oscars. Reportedly, he was displeased with the supporting actor nomination that he got, despite having had more screen time than Marlon Brando, who was nominated for Best Actor. I hope that's not true. I can see it. Yeah. It's so petty, though. Maybe. Yeah, no, I, I, I can still see it. The the other nominees, I, I was quite interested to see who else was nominated for Best Actor. Could, could you have included Al Pacino in that list? And the other nominees are Michael Caine, Laurence Olivier, Peter O'Toole, and Paul Winfield. <laughs> you put Marlon Brando in that group as well, and that's a pretty fine group of actors. Right, and Al Pacino was the unknown at that time. It, exactly. and no, it, He was nominated alongside um, at least... James Kahn, I think possibly even Robert Duvall for Supporting Actor. I think you're right. Yeah. And I I do see the disparity there between, you know, the the work that Al Pacino did and the, and the work that, for example, James Kahn did in the movie. Hmm. But that's just so petty and it hurts my heart that he would do yeah. that. The Supporting Oscar went to Joel Grey for his role in Cabaret, which I can completely get. It's a fantastic portrayal. I need to see this movie. I only know Joel Grey from Creepy Demon Dude on Buffy. Doc. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure he was in Alias, too. Wasn't he? He's not the main guy in Alias. The, the main no, no. Buffy. I think he was like his brother or something. I, oh, I could I say know. that, yes. He's, yeah, no, he's always like that. a creepy bad guy. And, and so I'm very interested to see him in mm. a movie like Cabaret. He's got a brief performance in one episode of star trek voyager and he's really good in that we got a star trek reference into the episode i was sure i was not gonna be able to look at that oh high five matthew everyone finish your drinks and refresh um (laughs) we've talked previously about other films that were included on the national film registry for being culturally historically or aesthetically significant films the godfather was selected for the registry in 1990 it was the second batch of films to be included um, so it was one of the earliest entries for it. I can appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. I'm surprised it wasn't on the first list, although you look at that first list of films that went in and they are some spectacular examples of 
uh, not not necessarily cinema, but recorded motion. There's things that have been entered that are you know the, the very first thing put to film and the, the first special effects and things like that. Okay. There are a lot of other things I could elaborate on. Um, there, there are so many stories. There are whole books to this. There are websites dedicated to this. Coppola constantly thought he was going to be fired, um, and he actually fired other people, thinking they were about to fire him or, or were reporting behind his back. Coppola cast most of his family in this film. Um, the big one is his sister Talia Shire, who plays Connie, the sister of the Colleoni brothers. But okay. he didn't want her to have that part because he thought she was too too pretty, and he'd be accused of nepotism. Now, his mum and his dad and his daughter are also in this film, but that one would have accused him as nepotism. <laughs> <laughs> who I know who his daughter played. She was the, the baby. The infant um, at the end. Who did his mom and, and dad play? They, they were extras at, I think, party scenes, probably the wedding scene at the beginning. Oh, okay. So, gotcha. In, in the same way, you know, Peter Jackson included Tolkien's and himself in his own films. The American Italian-American Civil Rights League asked for the words Mafia and Cosa Nostra to be removed from the film, although there were only two references that had to be removed, so they were happy saying, yes, this, this is a good film and should be uh, supported. There was uh, alleged, very alleged, I'm making clear it's alleged, Mafia influence in getting Al Martino recast as Johnny Fontaine when he was removed at one point. And then there's further rumours that Frank Sinatra had his role cut down because everyone thought it was based on Sinatra and he didn't want to be portrayed or, or seemingly portrayed in that way. The severed horse's head <laughs> used on waltz is actually a real head, a real head that was uh, obtained from an abattoir. I had to look up what that word was because I didn't know. Okay. For everybody in America who uses normal words, that's a slaughterhouse. Yes, it is. It's an, <laughs> it's an abattoir. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that word in my entire life. Uh, th there was an interesting quote about that because, uh, again, there was condemn condemnation of you know poor treatment of animals and things. And he said that this animal was already going to be killed because mm -hmm. it was already in slaughterhouse, and it was going to be killed to make pet food. People right. love cuddly little dogs and things and cats and whatever, but horses, <laughs> horses they can feed them to. So why are people in uproar? Who knows. Um, right. The Godfather had a huge impact on the style of mafia and gangster films that had often focused on uh, hitmen or, or street-level gangs. This was the upper echelons of the family. And it had a huge impact as well on directors. When you look at people like Tarantino, Christopher Nolan, Peter Jackson, there's a lot that they take from this. I think without The Godfather, we might not be happy with the you know, epic three-hour films that don't have huge fight sequences in them. Um, and it also got really positive reception from real-life gangsters, people in, in these situations who apparently walked away and said, yeah, that's quite how it was, and this is actually a film we can support. And there's, there's reports of some of them learning to talk more, more articulately, having seen this film, because they could see how useful it could be, rather than the you know uh, New York accent they might have had. <laughs> right. That's interesting. Mm. But again, it's uh, an older film and such a classic Everyone's seen it and everyone talks about it. So there is a lot of information around it. So uh, we could go on for days with all the facts we read. <laughs> and we probably will. So buckle yourselves in. Exactly. I, I did. When I started Googling after I finished watching it, I was just astonished at all of the information that yeah. just kept popping up over and over again. And it, I mean, it was interesting and it was great to read, but it's just, it's astonishing to me. Mm. Absolutely. So... What is The Godfather about? I know that some folks listen to this podcast without having actually seen the movies uh, beforehand. 
And so The Godfather is, in its simplest terms, a movie about a powerful mafia family transitioning power from father to son. Would you say that's a accurate, fair portrayal? Yeah. Um, this might be a question to get into a bit later, but do you think Michael or Vito are the lead character? Whose story are we following? Michael. Okay. I mean, the, the story is about Michael and his character development I, and I the would agree. that he goes. Yeah. Um, because the, the Michael that we meet at the wedding is very different from the Michael at the end when that door closes. Yeah. Just out from the Marines, having served to help his country. Just uh, yeah. not necessarily the thing you would have expected. Yeah. I, I didn't expect this movie to be about Michael. I thought it was about uh, Marlon Brando's character mm-hmm. and therefore I was completely shocked when he got gunned down you know 20 minutes into the movie yeah something hitchcockian about that yeah right I was like this this isn't right I don't understand and and that's when I figured out kind of what the story was really trying to tell it mm. wasn't just how this you know mob boss runs his family it's about what happens in that family yeah it's very character driven Mm. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely a character piece. There was a quote from Coppola that I love that I think was in one of my box sets somewhere that he says that he's always seen The Godfather as a story about a king with three sons. And he gave his talents to those sons. To one, the oldest, he gave his passion. To the middle child, middle son, he gave his uh, joy. And to the youngest son, he gave his cunning and intellect. And I think that's absolutely right. And there is something about it. It's the downfall of each of them. Because they don't have the combination of everything. I'm I'm not entirely sure I agree with that as far as Fredo goes. Because Fredo was the oldest, right? Fredo's the middle child. Oh, Fredo was Sonny? Yeah. Sonny was the oldest. Sonny's okay. the oldest. But Sonny is absolutely. the one who's going to take over. Yes, you're absolutely yeah. right. I don't know. I think it's just because I'm remembering Michael talking about Fredo being his older brother. Yeah. And so okay. in that moment, I'm thinking he's the oldest. But you're right. No, so... Yeah, Fredo getting his joy, that that makes perfect sense because he certainly didn't have passion or cunning wiles. So. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, Mandy, how did you watch the movie this week? I ended up buying the box set DVDs from Amazon because it was cheaper than renting the digital copies. I got the box set of all three parts for $12 that I get to keep, like the physical copy, nice. or I could have rented for 24 hours one of them for like $4.99 or something. And I thought, well, that's not efficient. And then... I'm really bummed because this morning when I started Googling The Godfather, all these movie showtimes started popping up. It's actually playing in the theaters here this week. Oh, terrific. Right? Oh, you should go. (laughs) I am actually kind of considering it because I think it would be fantastic to see on the big screen. Yeah. It's a film that uh, serves well watching it more than once. I can absolutely Mm. understand that because there's so much happening. Yeah. And And there's so much nuance in it. Yeah. All the different performances at once. Yeah. Um, I actually own two copies of the Godfather trilogy. Um, there was a, a DVD edition in the early 2000s. It was the last Christmas present that I got from my granddad before he passed away. Um, so I still own that because of sentimentality. And I also have the 40th anniversary collection Blu-rays, which includes a final shooting script, the family tree of the Corleones. Um, and this was the Blu-ray that I watched this week. It's a terrific edition. It's just in a giant box and it's so heavy because that script is many, many pages long. And it's not much dialogue, but there's a lot of direction. I would be interested in seeing that. I'm sure it's available online somewhere. It's huge. Yeah, there are there are transcripts and copies of the script. Um, this is just it's such a giant edition. It, and you don't normally get collector's editions <laughs> that have this level of both quality and bulk. 
Right. Yeah. Closest thing I can put to it is my, my Sin City that has the comics that the thing is based on. But even that's not this size. So um, we want to get into a bit of discussion. And there's a few questions I always ask you at the beginning. I'm not going to ask them first. I want to return to something you said earlier, Mandy, that, that was quite interesting to me. You said that this was a guy movie. So I would like you to explain your rampant sexism that's really quite offensive to the listeners. <laughs> What's a guy movie? <laughs> okay, first of all, I said that I thought it was a guy movie before, like way back when. That's why I never watched it growing up. Uh, but in that context, a guy movie is one of those, you know, shoot 'em up bing bang kind of movies. You know, guns and, and action and no actual plot or story that's really driving it. It's just fighting, you know. Like a, and, a, an 80 short to make a film. Unfair. Yes, I'm thinking something like Die Hard or Terminator or something like that. And and I'm not saying that's what they are because, as you guys all know, I really enjoyed Die Hard. But that was my impression when I was younger, when okay. I was a teenager and kind of growing up that, you know, I wasn't interested in action films, that I wasn't interested in conflict, violent conflict and that sort of thing. And so to me, that is what I would have characterized as a guy movie. Okay. And, and I, I can understand that you know, that description of what a guy movie is. Um, it's the same, almost the same phrase I use when I talk about video games like Call of Duty and Battlefield and so on. I just Yeah, shooty bang bang. That's good. One mechanic. Let's move on. <laughs> Why did you think The Godfather would be a guy movie? Because it's a gangster movie. And that is literally the only thing I knew about the movie. I mean, I, I knew a few things, like a severed horse head in the bed, and that, you know, kind of lends, lends credence to this whole idea that it's a violent movie. So, I I mean, that that's it in a nutshell. It's okay. a violent gangster movie. And, and it feels a little bit like the, uh, what I was saying, the, the typical gangster movie before this, you know, street hoods and people beating each other up on, but but not necessarily the oversight of the family, the, the top echelons of things. Right. Okay. Do you still think this is a guy movie? No. Okay. But that's largely because I no longer actually think that movies are guy movies or girl movies. <laughs> I like to think that I've grown a little more in maturity than that. But I will say it is definitely a gangster movie. And it was much more intellectually nuanced than I expected it to be, considering that it was a gangster movie. And that's kind of cool. Okay. Um, I think that covers our normal conversation about what your expectations for the movie are. Um, yes. We always talk about your experience of other connected media. Uh, I think we know some of the answers to these. Your experience of Francis Ford Coppola directed films, films starring Al Pacino, or other gangster films, things like The Goodfellas, The Departed, The Sopranos. I've seen one Al Pacino movie called The Recruit, and I watched it because it had uh, Colin Farrell in it. (laughs) Other than that, I got nothing. I've never seen another Coppola film. I've never seen... Any of those that you listed, The Goodfellas, The Sopranos, The Departed, nothing. Okay. I have seen nothing, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we might be extending the list a little bit. Um, instead of The Departed, I would recommend a film called Infernal Affairs, which is the film it's based on. I believe it's Korean off the top of my head. This is um, say, I've never even heard of it's, that. It's, it's, yeah, it's even better than The Departed. The Departed suffers because it's got a very major cast. So there's a little bit about watching the the actors rather than watching the performance. Okay, so you went into this fairly not knowing a lot of the uh, some of the tropes and some of the styles of the actors and people. Did you enjoy The Godfather? Yes, absolutely. Hooray. 
perhaps it's worth speaking to the big thing about this film. Do you think it's one of the greatest films ever? Oh, that's a hard question. You weren't <laughs> supposed to ask me that question. <laughs> I, I don't think I have an answer for that question. I, I think it was really, really good. And I think that the acting in this movie, particularly by Al Pacino, was phenomenal. But beyond that, I, I don't know that I can say it's one of the greatest movies of all time. But partially that's just because I haven't seen a whole lot of movies. Okay. Put this up against, um, and I'm trying to remember films you've mentioned, Save the Last Dance. How is this compared to Save the Last okay, Dance? Okay, that's not fair. <laughs> you can't compare The Godfather to some teen pop dance movie. You just can't. We're going to get letters from people who love Save the Last Dance now. <laughs> I love Save the Last Dance, but you can't compare it to The Godfather. I mean, no, you just can't do that. Okay. I, I'm not even sure that I can think of another movie that I would put at the same level as The Godfather that I've seen. Is there anything you would refer to as your favorite film or the best film you've ever seen or something like that? I don't want to do that. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> Strike this bit from the record. Edit all of the conversation out. I can explain why I don't want to do that if you yeah. want me to. Yeah, if you want I to. I don't want to do that. Because my current list of favorite movies comes from pure both enjoyment. <laughs> it's both of them. Yeah, both films no, that you've it, seen. <laughs> it comes from strictly pure enjoyment. Mm -hmm. And what we're talking about right now goes beyond that. It, it goes into that intellectual analysis and performance and, and writing and direction and all of those mm -hmm. things. And those are things I've never considered before, ever, okay. until we started doing this. And so I'm going to feel really silly when I tell you that my favorite movies are Enchanted and Rent. Okay. So. <laughs> I, I can yeah. completely buy Enchanted. Um. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's superb. It does a lot very well, and it, it rewards you for knowing a lot of the references it's making and the things it's doing. Yeah, right. Yeah, never seen Rent. You should because it's fantastic. I should. Rent. I do. Love, I do love a good musical, but uh. I I saw the movie before I ever actually saw the musical, and okay. it was the first movie in my life where, as soon as the credits, the end credits started rolling, I restarted the DVD and watched the whole thing over again. Oh, nice. So that kind of automatically made it go to the top of my list. But that's not a good, solid comparison to a movie like The Godfather, because The Godfather is good for so many reasons mm. beyond just, I like to watch that. Yeah. I, I can uh, understand your point about it's an, on pure enjoyment. If we talk about pure enjoyment, I love Freddy vs. Jason. It's really fun. It's really stupid. It's but I would not put that anywhere near up a list of the greatest films. <laughs> right. Of course. I mean, I I wouldn't know because obviously I haven't seen it. But <laughs> <laughs> and we'd have to watch because of because it's you completionist. You we'd have to watch all of the Freddy films, all of the Jason films. <laughs> so that's about well. The first Freddy film is at least. It, the first Freddy film is is on the list. I don't. Okay. I don't think we've put any. I have actually seen the first Jason movie. Ah, that's yeah. it. So horror movies. <laughs> he said dismissively horror movies. So uh, as part of this, when we do the talk about theme, uh, the the intellectual qualities of the writing, the direction, and the references, and blah blah, blah you're going to take a lot away from this and go and watch Save the Last Dance again and just enjoy it on a much deeper level. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Probably not that one. <laughs> okay. You made a list of thoughts as you watched the movie and thought about what you were enjoying from it, or things you weren't sure about. And there was quite a list of things that were just questions. Just 
when does this happen why is this happening so on and so forth so do we want to work through and do you want to pick out any that you weren't sure about you want to ask or you want to discuss we can go through all of them if you want to i can actually provide answers to some of them now that i've done extra reading excellent but they they weren't things or even they may have been answered later in the movie Mm. but they weren't things that as i was watching you know they were the questions that popped into my head The first one that I asked was very specific to the setting because I didn't know when this took place. And it took a while. Because of the way it was shot, it was really hard to discern time period until Mm. they showed the cars on the street, I think. Because it could have... It it was kind of timeless. It could have taken place within several different time periods, I think. And I just didn't know when this was supposed to have taken place until I saw the cars and realized, oh, hey, this is probably the 40s. Yeah, I think timeless is the exact right word. There is something in it that doesn't lend itself necessarily to any time period. So that's why it can remain a classic. My next biggest question was after, I don't even remember specifically when this happened. It was still during the wedding. Sonny, I think Sonny went out to find Michael, maybe. Maybe that's what would happen. And he discovered the FBI was out there checking the cars of all the people who were there at the wedding. And Sonny got really mad because Sonny's very hot-headed. And he runs into the wedding photographer and throws his camera to the ground. And that just seemed to be out of place. And I didn't really understand why he was directing his anger at the photographer. Did I miss something? Two things on it. It's not the wedding photographer. I think it's meant to be an FBI photographer because he's standing outside the threshold of the party, taking photos of the party to see who's there. So okay. it's, it's the FBI taking down the, the license plates and taking photos and all this sort of thing, and he, he doesn't like it. But taking the, the camera and smashing it uh, takes that extra by surprise because it was improvised. <laughs> he, was not, he was just supposed to stalk off in that sunny okay. way. But he grabs it, smashes it, and the extra is just standing there going, hey... Not sure you can do that. <laughs> okay, fair I, enough. I, I, I quite like that moment. Right. Mm. It just wasn't clear to me because we had just seen the wedding photographer and he had the exact same kind of camera. And so, and I'm pretty sure they were dressed very similarly too. And so that's why I thought they were the same person. And I just didn't make that connection of why. Like, Maybe. I just I kind of felt bad for that photographer. <laughs> Maybe it was. I mean, that's always been my, my head canon reason for it. That makes perfect sense. So, so maybe it's not. Maybe maybe that's something you get from actually reading about it or something, maybe. Right. It's another good thing that they do in showing and not telling. You know, we can see he's hot-headed and passionate about what's going on because he has that moment of firing up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so my next, the next thing that happened, and I was actually surprised at how early in the movie the horse head scene happened. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I was surprised that it was so early. I think it's just so iconic that I expected it to be more prevalent or something Mm -hmm. or or have more build up to it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. (laughs) How, how did they get the horse head in this man's bed while he's sleeping without him noticing? I'm sorry. I call shenanigans on that. I agree. That's definitely something (laughs) that, yeah, no, it is. It's like, oh, that's quite... That I'm was gonna painful keep, for you to say, wasn't it? As, as we go through, I'm I'm trying to judge my words properly. As we go through, I'm going to keep referencing showing and not telling, um, which is an idea of a, a writing concept. Rather than having an exposition device saying, oh, the Don's so powerful, he's great, he can do anything, and he will uh, you know, kill your horse, or, or he has killed your horse, which we get a little bit at the wedding, and I'll, I'll talk more to that later on. But 
here we are shown the power of the Don, that even the other side, literal other side of the country from New York, they have managed to get a severed horse's head into this guy's bed, covered in blood, and he doesn't realise until he wakes. And it's, it's another show of this is just how powerful the Don is. Which is a nice segue to my next thought here, mm-hmm. because I did not understand until not long after this scene, I think, that Don was a title and not a name. I legitimately <laughs> thought that his name was Don Corleone. Hello, and I'm And then Don. I looked... <laughs> I did. And then um, I was trying to figure out who some of the characters were because they looked familiar to me. Mm. But they're so young here that I wasn't sure who they were. And so I paused the movie and I Googled the cast of The Godfather. And that's when Marlon Brando showed up and his character name was Vito Corleone. And I was like, wait, what? And I didn't understand that. And they never, it's a good maybe 50% through the movie before they actually use his name. It's always Mm -hmm. the Don or Don Corleone. Actually, I'm not even sure it was the Don. I think it was just always Don Corleone. And so I didn't, I didn't understand that that was a title. And then after the movie, I went and looked it up and it turns out they kind of made that up for the movie. Well, for the book. Because he, the author of the book used it incorrectly. Because a Don, an Italian, is basically a respected uncle. And so the way we would say Uncle Tom, you would say Don first name. It would never be Don last name the way Don Corleone is. And it's just something that kind of stuck. So the author of the book made up his own pop culture reference, which I think is really cool. Well, Don, Uncle's not quite on. It's, a, it's an honorific that was traditionally used for... Uh, royalty within the church and with the nobles um, of particularly Mediterranean countries, um, uh, Iberian countries. And it has become uh, a a rank, a title that you can use. And then particularly it's someone who governs an area or a judge or something gets this term of Don. Um, That's interesting. I think think you're right that it was first used in this, in the sort of mafia connotation that we now associate it with. Right. I think we just read different sources for that because my, what I read very specifically said that it was respected uncle and said that it would go with a first name not a last name okay i'm not saying that's right i'm just saying that's what i read so and it's also used obviously for uh oxford university in england to, they are dons if they're academic members of staff there really mm. that's kind of cool i want to go be don ottaway <laughs> my next question is one that i still don't know the answer to and so i'm hoping you can shed some light on this for me in the scene where Vito gets shot, he sees the gunman coming, and he runs and throws himself on the hood of the car. And so it very much looks like he's protecting his car from being shot, and I'm hoping I'm just completely misreading that, and that he was trying to get to his kid to protect Fredo from being shot. Do you have anything to say about what was really happening in that scene? He's trying to run away. He hears the gunman running, and he knows there's something afoot. So he tries to run away, um, it trips over, and ends up sprawled on, on the car, and that's when they shoot him. I think it's the tripping because he spills the bag of fruit that he's buying. Okay. Because, I, I mean, that's just not how I read it, and it didn't. It doesn't make sense that in this movie that he would be trying to save his car because that's such a comedy thing, a modern comedy thing. But I didn't – I just – I couldn't get a read on what was actually happening there. Hmm. No, I think it is just tripping over as he's uh, trying to get away because cause he is an older man by this point. That is true. That is very true. Am I correct that all of the conflict in this movie is stemming from the fact that Vito said no to the drug deal? Is that really what's happening here? Yes, 
but the word the, the term drug deal is not quite the right one i think this isn't they're they're buying some coke or some heroin they are going to set up a business to import and and distribute drugs and it's going to make right. everyone a lot of money there's but, no better way to call that other yeah. than a drug deal yeah. <laughs> i mean this drug corporation i guess yeah a, a drug deal is what they're you know trying to stop in bad boys but in this, this is, this is they are going to use his political protection. They want to use the street level thugs to sell it, and, and as okay. I say, it's going to make everyone at every level a lot of money, and it's going to make a lot of money for their enemies. So they want a part of it. But Vito is an honourable man for a mafia boss. <laughs> he is. He absolutely is. Yeah. We can talk about that. We can in a little bit. We can talk about that. <laughs> In this movie, there was a lot of Italian spoken. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there were subtitles. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there were not. Very specifically in the scene where Michael meets with... Salazzo. Salazzo. That's his... I can never remember his name. <laughs> Salazzo and the, the police captain. Mm-hmm. They had an entire conversation in Italian. Mm-hmm. And there were no subtitles. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to be a very important conversation. So... Why were we, as the audience, not allowed to understand what was happening? I I would explain it through several different things, but I'm going to preface this with, I love it. I think it works perfectly because it's not important what they're saying. The important thing is you can see, and you you credit Al Pacino with, with good acting, he's phenomenal in this scene. You can see everything that's going on in his face. You you can pull enough from the the way Italian sounds quite like English because of the, the Latin uh, derivation. You you can understand a bit of what the conversation is going on about and from the mannerisms, but it's just not important to us. What's important is Michael's point of view, what he's thinking. Is he going to go through with it? Is he going to be able to get the gun? Is he even considering the offer that they're putting out for him? So that's why I think okay. there's no subtitles. I've also heard a thing that the chap who played Salazzo actually spoke Italian really quickly. So subtitles wouldn't have worked to have covered it properly. Okay. I don't speak enough Italian to know. <laughs> I don't speak any Italian. So that it, <laughs> it was just one of those things where I was, this seemed like such an important meeting. Mm. But I guess the important part was Michael was planning to kill them. So yeah. that's really what I should have been focusing on. And I did wonder if Michael was going to go through with it, if he was going to be able to go through with it. Mm. And when he came back after he retrieved the gun and he was sitting there and he was continuing to talk with Salazzo, I really didn't think he was going to do it. Yeah. And then when the camera closes in on his face Mm. and the music starts getting frenetic and, and the crescendos are building and it's just like the suspense is getting there and you can just see the way that Al Pacino's eyes are moving it was it was incredible. I knew in that moment. I was like, he is going to do this. He is taking yeah. this man down. And I thought it was an incredible performance. I don't mm. know that I've ever seen a performance quite like that before. Yeah, completely agree. The eyes flicking about everywhere. You can see just how much pressure he's put himself under and, and is debating what he's doing and what it's going to do to the rest of the family and the, the police coming after them and so on. But it doesn't matter what's being said to him. <laughs> Right. I, I love that the film trusts you to accept that. Um, in, in the same way, there's a lot throughout the film that doesn't, it, it doesn't explain things. It doesn't, oh, remember this guy? It was this guy from that scene we saw earlier. It doesn't do a lot of the normal movie tricks. It trusts you to have kept up with it. Uh, that's why I, I mentioned Christopher Nolan being influenced by this. It's exactly the same thing he does in his films. He expects you to keep up with it and understand what's going on or, you know, which dream we're in in Inception. 
Right. Well, you know, I wish, though, that they had done a few of the more traditional things. Mm -hmm. Because the way they treated time in this movie was so confusing to me. Until I figured out, oh, three years have gone by. They just didn't tell us. Yeah. Exactly. You know, um, and and so one of my comments that you pointed out here was when I said, I think I just decided I don't like Michael anymore. He had a wife who was murdered, and the next scene, he's showing up at Kay's doorstep, essentially, (laughs) proposing to her. Mm. But then right after I typed that, he says, oh, well, I've been back for over a year. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't really understand i mean because there were no visual cues at all you don't see him aging there's no chiron on the screen that says one year later or three mm-hmm. years later there's nothing and then the next scene after that apparently is three years in the future when he has a three-year-old kid yeah <laughs> and so that frustrated me a little bit and i think understanding that will benefit me greatly when i go back and rewatch it okay but it was a little bit confusing. Yeah, I, I can understand that because there is uh, you have to think about it and it takes you out of the film as you're like, oh, wh- why, why are they doing that? What's happening here? I, I, as a movie watcher, I feel very respected. Well, and I didn't, unless I missed it, I didn't notice them start messing with time that way until after the wedding to, oh, I cannot Apollonia? pronounce her name right now. Yes, Apollonia. Thank you. <laughs> because... Unless there's some weird continuity error, at his wedding to to her, his face was still not fully healed. Mm. And so that tells me we're still relatively close to what happened in New York. It's New York, right? Yes. Yeah, yes. There, there is a whole thing that the, that the face takes a very long time to heal. Um, I, I think there's references elsewhere that his sinuses are damaged, his jaw's been broken. His jaw was broken and it was wired shut, but... It, it shouldn't take more than a, six months to a year for that to heal. And so that's why I'm still thinking, you know, he's been in in Italy for a long period of time, of course. He's been there long enough to become attracted to this other woman, even though he just left Kay behind. Yeah. So some time has definitely passed, and you can see that he is healing, but there's definitely still bruising on his face. There's still swelling on his face. Mm even when he does marry her. And so to me, that tells me a significant amount of time has not passed. And then once she dies, the next scene that we have is he's been back in New York for a year. And so that's an entire year of his life that we didn't even see. Yeah, just getting everything back together. And I'm assuming that just means we didn't need to see that. No, it's not a significant enough part of the the journey that we see him taking. Now, you have actually read the book, right? I have. How similar is the book to the movie? Are there any significant differences? Overall, it's really similar. You obviously get the parts of a book that you would always get. You get more internal dialogue, you get more description of things, but a lot of what you see on the film is very much as it's presented in the book, which is terrific, and and part of the reason it's so good, because it's a well-written book. However, (laughs) there are some big, big differences. Particularly, Johnny Fontaine uh, is a much more major character there's a whole subplot about, I think it might even be the role that he then gets as, as a result of the horse's head. They then have a whole mafia thing of rigging the Academy Awards, so he wins the award for it. Glad that was not in the movie. I, I think I said up top that um, Frank Sinatra apparently had a go at them 
for the way they seem to be portraying someone very like him, although it's not actually based on him, supposedly. Um, so some of this was taken out. Santino's mistress, Lucy Mancini, that we see at the wedding with him. Uh, we see her only very briefly at the wedding and then a bit later on. She's she's actually quite a major character in the book. There's a whole story about her vagina that takes up a large number of pages in a book about the mafia. And that's, well, that's one of the reasons... Yeah, it's one of the reasons that Coppola said it was uh, not the book that he thought it was going to be and why he couldn't get through, because there's this whole thing about... Um, oh, I'm going to try not to be too graphic here. In in the wedding, there's a, a terrific moment with Sonny's wife doing hand gestures and then turning to her husband to as she's impressing all the other brides, all the other wives. Mm-hmm. Um, and she sees him sneaking off with Lucy. Right. So that tells you everything you need to know about Sonny. The thing you find out in the book is that Lucy has an abnormally large vagina. <laughs> and Sonny is the only person who can make her feel anything. <laughs> yep. Um, so when, oh when, when he dies, she goes through a whole spate of depression, that sex will be nothing for her anymore. She's never going to enjoy sex again, so on and so forth. She goes to Las Vegas. Um, and I can't remember the exact sequence, but she either starts dating a doctor or meets a doctor who she then ends up dating who uh, is a plastic surgeon and is able to fix in inverted commas her um, abnormally large vagina and she enjoys sex with him wow and, I, and I don't know what to say about that <laughs> yeah, so it's this wonderful story about the lives of this mafia family and it has this whole side plot about the mistress of one of them <laughs> That, I, I, I got nothing about that. Nothing. Yeah. I think I think it actually her story intersects with Johnny Fontaine because the doctor treats Johnny for uh, warts on his uh, throat, on his larynx, I think. And either he then introduces him to Lucy or Lucy introduces him and that's how that gets treated. One or the other. Okay. But yeah. Also glad that was not in the movie. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fully just side plot that doesn't come to anything. Vito Corleone's experience as an immigrant to America and then growing up is given a lot more detail in the book and it forms the basis of the character and your understanding of where he comes from. Uh, The family business after they move to Las Vegas, after the end of the film, is detailed a lot more. And then there's there's two moments that I I always... They stayed with me because they add a lot more colour to the film particularly. When Michael is walking with Apollonia uh, and you see the family walking a few paces behind them, there's a, a lovely moment where she stumbles and he catches her. Right. And it's it's very nice. It's very cute. That whole sequence is in the point of view of her mother, watching them and thinking about her daughter growing up and so on and so forth. And she stumbles and the mother laughs. And she describes this girl as a mountain goat who has roamed these hills since she was in diapers. And she would never, ever stumble on them. Unless she's uh, walking so she with a cute man. On purpose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's really nice. <laughs> that is cute. Yeah. yeah. And Kay gets a lot more detail in the book as well. Uh, Diane Keaton. She has a sequence with Mama Corleone, Vito's wife, whose name I now cannot remember. Uh, and actually, a thing about how to deal with being a part of this world, but not a part of it, because women are not a part of this world. Right. Uh, Mamma Corleone tells her about how she goes and prays for her husband's soul every single day. You know, and she hopes that she uh, the work she does for him will be enough to save him. And that's what she puts into all this. Um, and Kay is not happy with this. And she goes back to her parents. And Tom convinces her to come back to them. And she eventually marries Michael um, and, and everything you see in, in the film. But I think the book actually ends with her going to a chapel and praying for him. 
I did read that they filmed that as an ending mm. and that ends up not being the ending they used because they wanted it to end on a darker note. Yeah. That ending is so dark. It is, but I get it. It, it was a fitting end for the movie. Mm. Oh, it's perfect. But he just lies to her and he knows he's lying and he has no tells either way. Now, I I did read in all of my Googling today that another difference between the book and the movie is the scene that was at that was uh, between Michael and Vito before Vito dies when he's telling Michael this is not the life I wanted for you mm. I wanted you to be a senator or a governor that wasn't in the book it was added to give a resolution to Michael and Vito's relationship to to show that Vito loves him so did did that not happen in the book was their relationship more I, I don't even know what the word was it I guess shown as maybe less caring not that I remember but there's a lot it's almost a smaller part of the book because there's a, there's a lot of detail about the before Michael you know, young Vito and there's a lot about after Vito with Michael taking over the business and doing things in Las Vegas okay see and we didn't get any of that in the movie no, no we, we got things, the core really. story yeah absolutely right and, and well, so when I read that, I, I had a hard time understanding it because Michael's love for his father is what propels him on this path because he mm. immediately wants to go for vengeance for them shooting his father. And that's because of the love that he had for him. And so it just, it struck me as weird that it was a possibility that in the book, that's not the way it was. Yeah. Even in the film, it's a, a lot more about the family as a whole and the protecting of the family. I, I, there's just a short period of sequences where Michael is at the hospital and looks after his father. Um, and he has that great moment of looking at the lighter that Enzo, the baker, um, who the, the Don has helped stay in America to marry the baker's daughter. His hands are shaking. He can't light his own cigarette. And Michael takes the lighter from him and lights it. And his hands are steady as anything. He, he doesn't even have any, any worries about over all of this. And then he's attacked and they realize that they're going to keep going after, after Vito because they want to kill him. And he then, he's the one who says, but why can't we kill them? Surely we could do this. And just there's a transition through those sequences. You can see him. Okay, I can do this and I can be the one to save my family and make us powerful again. Right. Well, because he had to, because Sonny wasn't going to do it. Sonny was going to get them all killed. Mm. He had to be the confident one, the calm one, the logical one. Yeah. And I, I thought they did a really good job of, of juxtaposing the two and making the audience understand Michael's transition. Yeah, e even in the, the last big scene with the two of them together where he's he's just sat there calmly on an armchair saying that this is what we could do and Sonny's pacing around and he's, you know, you shoot him in the head, but a bing! He's, he's full of life doing all this. Right. But Michael, Michael's scarier. Al Pacino has a thing he does in all his films. He shouts. And there are super cuts of Al Pacino shouting all over the place. And he does it even a couple of times in this film. But he's much scarier when he goes intense and quiet. Yeah, the only time I can actually recall him shouting. And you are well aware that my memory is often very wrong when we talk <laughs> about movies. But my only memory of him shouting was shouting at Kay when she's questioning him at the end. Mm. But then he calms down tells her that she can yeah. ask one time and then he goes to that silent deception that very intense deception mm. and I, i'm trying to think of another time where he he was shouty instead of 
intense stare guy, and I'm not thinking of one. I think there's only one or two. That's exactly the one that comes to my mind as well. Just how angry he was is with her at the end, because it's not something he ever saw his mother do, and not something he was prepared to deal with. But yeah, then he lies to her face. Oh boy. An interesting thing about this movie to me is how much I really enjoyed it, considering my aversion to really terrible human beings. Mm. Yeah, there's there's no one likable in this film. But I really like Michael. Yeah? I do. You want to be like Mike? He's my movie crush. <laughs> I Actually, I tweeted that uh, while I was watching this movie, that I have a new movie crush, and it's Michael Corleone. And then... Of course, I said no spoilers because I haven't seen part two or part three yet. Yeah. And, and, and people still tweeted you stuff. They did, but nothing that I would think is spoilery because I just have no context for anything. And I will say I tweeted that during the period where he was married with um, Apollonia mm-hmm. because he was just happy and cute and wonderful there. And, and his character had grown at that point. And then I, I kind of didn't like him for a little bit there, but then it came right back whenever during the baptism scene, when they yeah. were intercutting between the the work that he had ordered to be done as all of that was happening while he mm-hmm. was becoming the godfather of, of his sister's child, mm-hmm. I fell in love with him all over again at that point because he's so capable and so confident and he did what needed to be done for his family. He stepped into his father's shoes. And I loved it. And I almost think that he has the potential to be a better Don than his father was. Don as in running of the family business? Yes. Okay. Yes. He is much more calculating. Uh, much more on top of things. Much more. But no, not, not necessarily much more. But he's at the same level his father was at the peak of his powers or, or you know, when he knew everything he was ever going to know. And he's still quite young. Yeah, that's fair, because I only got to see Vito as an old man. Yeah. And so I don't know what he was like while he was still earning that respect. At Mm. this point, at the point where we meet Vito, he is so respected and universally known that you get people like Luca who are terrified of meeting him and and terrified of even just coming to say hi. Yeah, and 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 Luca Brazzi is a terrifying man of himself. He is, absolutely. And... And so I guess seeing Michael work to become that is is really interesting to me. And and you see that it is happening because the last line of the movie is where one of the two men, you know, they're kissing his hand. They call him Don Corleone. That's when he officially kind of becomes that to the people around him. Because if I'm not mistaken, it was the same man who had said that he wanted to leave once yeah. the family business was moved to Las Vegas once everything was done. He wanted to leave. He didn't want to be in it anymore. And he's he the one who kisses family, his yeah. hand and calls him Don Corleone. And so we're seeing Michael just step into that role and become that. And I just, I really, I like that kind of character growth, even if he's not a good man. Mm. And he's not a good man based on normal standards. But I think he is a good man in what he's trying to do for his family. <laughs> Based on legal justice standards. <laughs> right. I mean, yes, it's not really does. okay to murder people, but, but you, you know what I mean. Yeah, the, the the moment where Sonny's been off with his mistress and he finally finally comes into the meeting, having been called a couple of times. 
and with no reason to call it Vito turns it turns to him looks at him and then turns back to Johnny Fontaine he gives his uh, a man who doesn't spend time with his family is not no man at all right he understands the the morality of the situation well and and we were going to talk about this a little bit later but I'll go ahead and say it now Mm. one of my favorite lines was Vito's in the beginning when the the undertaker is asking him to murder the men who beat up and attacked his daughter that is not justice your daughter is still alive Mm-hmm. And I love that because yeah. that means he has a moral compass. He's not just a blind murderer. Mm. And that for that to be my introduction to his character and to this family is really what I think made me like them and not see them as really terrible human beings the way I would have if I was seeing it from another perspective. Yeah. And it starts off with... 25 minutes i think of a bright happy celebration there's these dark dealings going on at the same time but it doesn't start off the way of most gangster films with dark dealings and murder and death and violence i was actually you can probably picked up on this reading my notes <laughs> the wedding scene got on my nerves a little bit because it was never ending and i just wanted to get on with the gangster movie <laughs> and we were just in this wedding for forever but now I appreciate it because I understand, and I think I think they said this at some point during that long scene that I understand the reason all of these things were happening is because he couldn't refuse a request on the day of his daughter's wedding. Yeah, and that's why people had lined up to come make these requests of him, yeah. which I think is really great world building detail. Yeah, I, I didn't really understand why we needed to see this party going on for so long, especially when I knew most of them were not characters we were really ever going to see again. The, the whole sequence is pure world building. Um, you know, the, the three minute opening from uh, The Undertaker, who uh, talks about the situation and talks about his life and, and why he's coming here and so on. And then you see the back and forth about how he doesn't, respect is not the wrong word, but he, he clearly fears the Don. Mm-hmm. and the way he treats him but he eventually gets what he wants from it and then you have the comparison with the baker who comes in in friendliness explains the situation wants something and the don skips off half of his you know monologue that he's set up for himself and says oh this is what you want he goes, yeah you understand perfectly wait until you see the cake i've made i'm out of here i don't want to be dealing with any of this business but you get that nice comparison you get to find out about the familial relationships you know the, the daughter right. is not really important despite the fact it's her wedding day given that uh, Vito walks away from the pictures with her and doesn't even say anything to her. He doesn't say, oh, sorry, dear. We can't do it until your brother's here and the family's all together. He, he says it to Sonny and then walks away. Right. You, you get to find out about Tom Hagen, about uh, Kay. Michael gives Kay the explanation about Luca Brazzi and his, his father's dealings as a youth and setting himself up with Johnny Fontaine. You get Paulie talking about possibly stealing the wedding bag of all the money. If this was only someone else's wedding. So you start to say, oh, Paulie's a bit shifty as well. I didn't understand that was the same person. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot that goes on. You get to see Sonny being passionate both in having a go at the FBI and sneaking off with his mistress at a wedding. You get to see his wife understands that he's doing this and just accepts it because he's next in line for the Corleone family. So you probably don't want to get on their bad side. I, I love that the whole sequence does so much of this work. And then you don't need to return to any of it. From there on out, you understand all the relationships and what Tom Hagen is to the Godfather and so on and so forth. That is true. It did a lot 
as far as introducing the characters and and setting up Michael's story and and why he's apart from the family in the beginning and that is actually really good. Mm. I, I can appreciate the wedding sequence more now. It's just <laughs> at the time I was ready to get to the shoot 'em up bang bang movie and I was getting fifteen minutes of this colorful <laughs> just wedding. Kill some Italian Americans already. <laughs> Basically, yes. <laughs> yes, stupid Drake. <laughs> can you tell I've been practicing that for this? Sure. <laughs> how would how would Meowth speak if he was in The Godfather? Um Meowth is a Pokemon. <laughs> just for, for full disclosure. Okay, yeah, I have no idea. You mentioned that there's a lot in this film that you've seen elsewhere, that you know is a reference or a line that you've picked up from. I put through a list of of the key things that I could think of, but is there anything that stands out to you? You go, oh, I'm so glad I've seen where that comes from, or that actor or that character type. There were a couple of things, actually, that I didn't realize came from this movie. Mm. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Yeah, which is a great line. It is a great line, Mm. and it's everywhere in... It didn't occur to me that it had its origination in The Godfather until I saw this movie. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's where that came from. Uh, the same thing with It's Not Personal, It's Strictly Business. Yeah. the uh, One of the things, we, I, I went through the list of references on IMDb to see other things that reference this and what, what stood out to me. The one that really surprised me is the Lego movie. Surely not the Lego movie. Surely that didn't do a Godfather reference. The bad guy in the Lego movie is called Lord Business. And at some point, he has the line, it's not business, it's it's not personal, it's strictly business. Did the Lego movie name their villain for that joke? It sounds like they did. (laughs) Yeah. Terrific. Of course, you know I haven't seen the Lego movie, right? I haven't seen the Lego movie. I mean, it's just safe to assume that if you're going to talk about a movie, I haven't seen it. So, I I did actually mean mean to say in the introduction, I I saw the Lego Batman movie earlier. It's my nephew's birthday, so we went to see this big fun – it's his sixth birthday, in fact, this big fun movie, and then we went out for burgers afterwards. Um, So coming home to talk about The Godfather has been a bit interesting. I had to get myself in the zone on the drive home. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't know. The the Lego Batman seems to be – Pretty business-like, based on the trailers. Business-like? Yeah. He's very serious. Okay. In the trailer. I haven't seen the movie. I've only seen I, the trailer. He's I haven't very, t- like, dark and broody in the trailer. Okay. I haven't seen the trailers. I don't watch trailers. Fair enough. He's not. He's Lego Batman from the Lego movie. But you haven't seen the Lego movie, so that would mean nothing to you. He's like from the Lego Batman games. That means nothing to you either. Uh, nope. No point oh, of reference boy. there for me. Sorry. <laughs> Moving on. Go on. Yeah, sorry. If I wanted to kill you, you'd be dead already. I had no idea that came from this movie. Mm. It comes up all the time. Yeah. And it's I think it's just an expression. It's a useful thing to say. But it, that exact phrase is the one you hear in so many superhero movies, action movies, spy movies, anything. Right. Yeah. Right. Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. Yeah. It's something I've heard. Yeah. I, I don't know that I've actually seen it referenced in a, another movie or something, but I know that my ears have heard it over it, over the years, and so it was interesting to see that. And then I learned today that that line was improvised. Mm. He was only supposed to say, leave the gun, and he added the take the cannolis part yeah. because of the the previous scene where his wife reminded him to go get the cannolis. Yeah, and it's it's perfect to show again, it, this is just business. <laughs> right. Which we're still doing the, the getting the food we wanted to. That, that line, the one that I can think of recently, is it was used in Supergirl. 
when they're doing not Pictionary, Articulate, Artic no. What's the one where you have to name, you read out clues to a thing and they have to name it? Is that Articulate? Um, I, n I don't know. There's a few of them playing a game together, and it's it's it a way of demonstrating how Kara and her sister are on the same level and know each other so well. Oh, she, was that one of the clues? Yeah, well, she she just says, leave the gun, take the cannoli. Oh, Godfather. And then they go on to the next bit. Huh. Yeah. I vaguely remember that now. Maybe that's why it seemed so familiar, because mm. I had recently seen it. Even Supergirl references the Godfather. What the hell is this? That's a Sicilian message. That means Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishes. Mm. It's something that I had heard and was surprised to hear here. And, and when I did, I was like, oh, that's another one. <laughs> I think that's one that our friends over at uh, Burger of the Week are going to reference at some point, because I'm fairly sure that comes up as a number of puns on uh, Bob's Burgers. Oh, hey, guess what? That's another show I haven't seen. <laughs> I think we have a new drinking game. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's... A, oh, no, that's got to be a sip, that one, surely. <laughs> <laughs> because all of our listeners would die. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime Mandy hasn't seen anything, just look at your drink. You don't have to partake of the drink. <laughs> um, and I, I put down the orange in the mouth that Vito does with his grandson at the end, that heartbreaking moment at the end. Um, of course, John does that in the opening of Lost, in the pilot. That's just a thing people do, though. I don't know that I would ever have linked it back to The Godfather. Oh. I mean, that's something that I do. I've done that. Growing up, I did that because it's just something people did. When, when you look like Terry O'Quinn and you do that in your mouth you can't help but think of Marlon Brando okay I'll give you that one um I was gonna say you, you listed the horse's head here as mm. well and I'm I'm I can't think of any any time I've actually seen it referenced in something else but I've heard people talk about it where else does it come up in pop culture uh, the Simpsons is such an obvious easy one it, it's used in a number of different ways particularly with you know doll's heads or Another drinking game where Matthew says, you know, I keep hearing it every time I listen to the podcast, I'm trying to get rid of it. In The Simpsons, you have it with doll's heads, Crusty the Clown heads, things like that left in a bed. Okay. I have a picture in, in my head of Bart waking up and finding a crusty head. And I'm sure it's used elsewhere and I, I now can't think of any. But it's you'll notice it when you, now you know these things, you'll go, oh, yes, it's used in this and it's used in this. Or it's uh, something similar is done over here. Okay. Mm. I probably should have said this earlier when we talked about the horse's head being real, but I noted it down further in the dock, and so I forgot. But uh, John Marley, the actor uh, who was in the bed, didn't know that it was going to be a real horse's head and all of the rehearsals. It had been stuffed. And so in that take, when he actually you know, pulled the covers aside and it was real, his screams were real there because he wasn't expecting it. So was he asleep when they put it in? <laughs> It, I don't. Wait. I I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he just wasn't watching because he assumed it was the same as it had been every other time. I mean, because he still would have been covered with loads of fake blood and stuff, and so all of that would have happened. But they said, you know, and maybe they made it up. But I read that he didn't know it was going to be real. That it, they swapped it out at last minute, and so he was very startled. Okay. I believe everything I read on the internet. Okay. I can tell. <laughs> I have already really kind of talked about my favorite parts. What were your favorite moments in the movie, favorite lines, that sort of thing? I talked about the wedding sequence, uh, and I do love it. I love for everything it does. I've mentioned showing and not telling, and this, this sequence does that very well because it mixes a bit of telling 
you have Michael explaining about Luca Brazze holding the, the gun to the guy's head and the, making him an offer he can't refuse. But you also have seeing what Sonny is actually like, the power that the Don has because people are afraid of him or they do exactly what he wants, even though it's not it's his daughter's wedding, but what he says goes and he can still sneak off. Uh, the whole sequence is just perfect. And it would be very easy for me to say here, say, you know, my favourite moments from this film are everything, all of it. <laughs> That's not fair. That's cheating. But once once Michael's come back, once he has become the Godfather, no, before he's become the Godfather, he goes to Las Vegas and he has the scene with Mo Green. Again, he gets so quiet. He, he's telling Mo that he's going to take over and that they're going to buy him out. And, and Mo starts arguing. And every argument he bats aside, he says, well, no, this is what the case actually was. This is why you did this. This is why we're going to be able to be more successful than you. And then Mo's, it, I, Mo comes up with one good argument. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business, mate. First of all, you're all done. The Coyote family don't even have that kind of muscle anymore. The Godfather is sick, right? You're getting chased out of New York by Bazzini and the other families. What do you think is going on here? You think you can come to my hotel and take over? I talked to Bazzini. I can make a deal with him and still keep my hotel. Is that why you slap my brother around in public? And he completely changes the argument they're having. And it it maintains that power position, despite the fact that Mo has stood up and he's sat down so that the, the sort of power stance is reversed. He's completely in control of the situation. And he, Mo, Mo defends himself. He says, you know, so you straighten my brother out. And Mo storms off in a huff. And because Freddy tried to defend Mo, he then talks Freddy down as well. Fredo, you're my older brother and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. Ever. It's reminiscent of the stuff we saw with uh, Mal Reynolds talking Jane down, but then also having a go at the Doctor in Firefly. Right, and that's the way a good leader should yeah. should be. You know, you you dress everybody down but separately so that you're not disparaging each other in front of other people. Yes. That was a terrible way to say that, but you know what I mean. No, absolutely, and it, it is really good management of everyone. And he just stays sat in his chair through the whole thing. I think maybe playing with a pack of cigarettes, but he's in control of the entire room from the moment he walks in. I already talked about Vito's clear moral compass with his that is not justice, your daughter is still alive Mm. moments, which set. I think that's what set up my expectation for the whole movie once I was in the movie. And I really liked that. And interestingly enough, my other favorite moment was at the very end of the movie when they call Michael Don Corleone and then the door shuts. Because really, while the climax of the film was what was going on during the baptism, when Michael was basically calling all of the shots and and clearing all the family business up at one time, I think it can be argued that that's the climax of the movie – the end is a climax all of its own because all of a sudden Michael has become the head of the family. And yeah. so for him, his story is just beginning. And I love that. I love that it makes me want to see what happens next. Yeah, it's it's a very sharp ending to the film. It just, the door closes and you see Kay's face go. And that's, again, another reference you see in a lot of places. Kind of very much, she's now an outsider. But it just, the, the film just suddenly finishes at that point. I really liked it. Mm. Again, we don't have to have everything tied up in a nice bow. They can respect us as a viewer to go, and that's completed the the journey of Michael from war hero through to Don Corleone. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we move into this next section? Uh, I don't think so. 
Okay. We have asked some of our listeners for questions on the movies that we're talking about before we record them. And so we have a few questions that we want to go over just to make sure that we touch on all of the things that you guys want to hear about. So Garrett on Twitter at GarrettCRW asked, what did you think of the graphic nature of the violence? It's my understanding that it was considered shocking in 1972. Yeah, it's a really interesting question because for, for two reasons. The violence that there is is often bloody. The shooting of uh, Captain McCluskey and Salazzo, the shooting of Sonny, the horse's head. Even the shooting of Vito, because they did some yeah. up-close shots of, of those bullet holes with like blood pouring out of them. Yeah, absolutely, the, and the assassinations at the end. But they're all very short, so it's more the, the impact of suddenly someone shot and then we move on from it. We don't linger and we don't have huge gunfights going back and forth or, or people getting wounded in that way. Right. But the uh, one of the things I did read when we were uh, researching this is the violence was actually upped by the studio. They wanted it to be more violent because they wanted it to have a, a wider appeal, not just the core intellectual theme of it. They wanted it to have these more shocking moments to grab people in. Things like the, the, the abuse that Connie suffers. Some of that was added in to really hammer the point home and to make it... Um, Oh, that more, scene was hard to watch. Yeah, it's or, not more I should accessible. say listen to. Yeah, it's more visceral. And she smashes yeah. the crockery in. And she is being a bit of a brat, to be fair. But he's the one sleeping around and treating her awfully. So. I don't call that being a brat because she just found out that her husband is like actual evidence that her husband is yeah, cheating true. on her while she is very pregnant with his child. You know, so I, I think her reaction was justified. Yeah. But I'm, I'm glad she, they showed she it. Hit him it with a, a loaf of bread. <laughs> She she threw several things at him. I yeah, think. yeah. <laughs> and then I I was glad that it was off screen. The beating itself was yes. off screen. Yeah, it was horrifying to listen to, but I don't know that I could have handled watching it. Yeah, but you can always picture something worse than you actually see, which makes it really effective. Yes. Yeah. I think for me, being a product of the 21st century, I didn't find the bloodiness to be particularly graphic. I mean, when you consider what's normal today. Mm. But I did think I was actually surprised by the the newspaper montage where it showed the photos of all the the mobsters that were dying. Mm. And they they kept showing those black and white photos of dead people, essentially. Mm -hmm. I was surprised that was in the movie. That, to me, was more graphic than any of the actual murders that we saw on screen. That that sequence uses some real... Uh, images from mob shootings mm -hmm. and so some of the points where they do linger on death what am i thinking of i'm thinking of the assassinate or, or michael killing salazzo the death of apollonia the shooting of sunny on the causeway does it lingers a little bit longer than you would expect the shot to and i think that's a drive home the point that they're making the film look like these things that you see in the newspaper and that are reported from the 20s on okay and, and that sequence with all the the spitting newspapers and the headlines and so on was put together by George Lucas. I did read that. Close personal friend of the Coppola's. Yes. Sorry, did I just gazump your fact? <laughs> no, no. I, I hadn't decided if I was going to bring it up, so that's great. Uh, my friend Kevin Klein, who was previously a guest on the podcast, said uh, there are a number of things that influenced future filmmakers and that he thought it would be interesting for us to point out some of those, which he actually does in his comment, specifically the symbolism of all of the oranges and Marlon Brando's mouth cotton balls. So I had no idea what 
this orange symbolism thing was, so I had to go look it up. And basically, there are all of these theories out there that oranges symbolize death in this movie because, generally speaking, if you see an orange, then the person the orange is near is going to die, right? I mean, that's generally what it is, what people say it is, right? That's what I think when I see an orange, so... (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, and there there are loads of lists out there that actually go through all three tri- all three movies in the trilogy, and I, I had to stop reading because I haven't seen the other two. Good. <laughs> but I did find – let me pull it up. I did find a quote from – so there's a book on the making of the film, and the book is called The Godfather Legacy. And the author of that, his name is Harlan Lebo, and he writes, for production designer – oh, I'm going to butcher this name – Dean – Tavularis? Oranges were simply another carefully chosen complement to otherwise somberly dressed sets. We knew this film wasn't going to be about bright colors, and oranges make a nice contrast, he said. I don't remember anybody saying, hey, I like oranges as a symbolic message. So, you know, there's a thing called death of the author, and I guess maybe in this instance, death of the producer? <laughs> maybe? So if, if, if you see that symbolism there, great, wonderful. I just don't think it's intended symbolism. De- death of the prop team. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are oranges, I think, even scattered around at the wedding. I, I think you're right. It was just used as set dressing. More often than not, in this film, I can understand them having watched it back and going, ah, this is some, perhaps something we can use as a theme as we make sequels to it. Right, yeah. right. But also, they come from Sicily. Um, a whole region that grows a lot of things like oranges and olives and so on. So I can see it being a, a favorite thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Kevin also mentioned uh, Marlon Brando's mouth cotton balls, which is interesting to me because one of the things I really wanted to know while watching this movie, you know, I go into these things blind. I don't Google things. And so my thoughts are undiluted. And so I really wanted to know, did Marlon Brando have something in his mouth to make him talk like that? And I looked it up. And he did not stuff his mouth with cotton for the movie. He did for the screen test. And when they actually did the movie, a dentist made this whole like steel denture prosthesis thing to make his mouth look like that. And I just thought that was really interesting. Mm. That's the screen test has two stories behind it. Some people say it was a screen test. It was making sure they had the right look for the character uh, and that he could come across on screen in the way they wanted him to. Other people say this was the audition, but they didn't tell Marlon Brando because they didn't want to offend him. Yeah, I I saw both of those versions. So I guess I would say it's an unofficial screen test. Like yeah. they they went to Marlon Brando's house with the camera and had him do these various things to see what it would look like. Yeah, basically, and it included darkening his hair with shoe polish, stuffing yes. cotton gauze into his cheeks to make him kind of look like a bulldog, <laughs> and having him do the voice. And it worked because it, you'll recall that we talked about how the producers really did not want Marlon Brando to be Vito. They did not want him anywhere near the movie. But once they saw that video, they knew nobody else could do it. Mm. So I think that's really cool. Mm-hmm. And I mean, talk about method acting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and this next question is one that was specifically made to delight me. Uh, J.D. Katz Frostwonk. We have wonderful Twitter names, don't we all? <laughs> Who is on Twitter, at Cat with a View, asked, I'd like to know if you wanted to pet the white cat as much as I did in the scene with Brando. And the answer is absolutely yes, because that cat was adorable. It's so playful in a scene so that's so playful. serious. 
<laughs> well, and the best part about it is that cat wasn't supposed to be there. It wasn't written into the movie at mm. all. The cat was a stray cat on the set that just really got along with Marlon Brando. And so Coppola just threw the cat in his lap and said, do the scene with the cat. And that's kind of how that worked out. And actually, the cat was purring so loud that it messed up some of the dialogue and they had to re-loop it because it was obscuring what Marlon Brando was saying because it was just so loud. Never work with children or animals. I don't know. That cat was adorable. Like, all I wanted to do was, like, put my face in his belly, which is probably not what you should be thinking when you're watching The Godfather. (laughs) But that's what I was thinking while I was watching this particular scene in The Godfather. It reminds me a bit of... Vito at the end when he's playing with his grandson, with Michael's son, Anthony. The child was actually called Anthony and wouldn't respond unless they called him his name, so they just called Michael's son, Anthony. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> he was a cute little boy. He was very cute. Marlon Brando's playing dead on the floor and he's going ah, ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that scene was so heartbreaking. It really is. Okay. Is there anything else that we need to discuss about The Godfather today? Uh, looking on from here, are you prepared to watch parts two and three? Definitely part two. Mm-hmm. I've had people tell me that part three maybe isn't very good, but I'm also a completionist, so more than likely if I watch part two, I'm going to want to watch part three. I don't want to heighten or set expectations. Part two is at least as good as the first. Part three is not as good. Um, I still like it. I still think there's a lot to enjoy in there. Um, and a lot that we can talk about when we get to it. Okay, definitely. We can put it on the schedule. I do have some further reading for you, things you might want to consider. There are two films that are linked to this film that I think you might enjoy. One is called The Freshman. It stars Matthew Broderick. Uh, it's 1990, I think it came out. He is a student who moves, I think, to New York to go to college. And he is robbed when he gets there. He ends up finding the person who robbed him. He is told he has to do them a favor to uh, get his stuff back or to be helped to get his stuff back. And he ends up with this sort of mafia style gang helping to import or procure animals for an exotic animal restaurant including a Komodo dragon, which is part of the whole thing. But the person who runs this mafia type crime family gang is Marlon Brando basically pastiching Don Corleone (laughs) to the extent there are lines in there where Matthew Broderick says he looks really like that guy from The Godfather but no one tells him (laughs) (laughs) so is this Ferris Matthew or Broadway Matthew this is Ferris Matthew Okay. Actually, then I would really want to see it because I've only yeah. ever seen Ferris Matthew in Ferris Bueller. So that sounds fun. I, I haven't seen it in probably 20 something years now. Um, <laughs> I, I remember it being fun enough. You know, it's a good TV movie. Okay. The other one I would mention is Mickey Blue Eyes, which is, I think, a 1999 rom com starring Hugh Grant. I was going to ask if that was a Hugh Grant movie because it sounded very familiar. Yeah. Uh, have you seen it? I don't Probably think not. so. No. Uh, Hugh Grant <laughs> is... Well, let's be honest. He's Hugh Grant. And he's get, he's getting married to this woman who uh, turns him down and it turns out her family are basically the Corleones. Um, and he, just, he, he convinces her to go through with it, but he then ends up getting involved in the family business 
there's a great sequence where he's driving along and he, he's making notes on his dictaphone. He's saying, okay, Rent, Goodfellas, The Godfather, parts one, two, and three, and so on. <laughs> the head of this crime family is James Kahn. No way. It is indeed. <laughs> it's it's If you like rom-coms, it's genuinely quite a funny film. There is an animatronic gorilla in it. There's a little cuddly plush toy thing that's just hilarious that I would love. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's worth seeing. It's a good fun film. That's a good endorsement. Yeah. I, I was quite surprised in your notes, just as a quick segue. You didn't mention James Kahn as going, oh, it's James Kahn, which you would normally do. It's Buddy's father from Elf. But I, I guess I'm just more familiar with James Kahn's work throughout. And he looked like James Kahn to me. Mm. He just looked like a young James Kahn. And so it didn't surprise me when I saw ah, his I name. That's the thing. Uh, Al-, Al Pacino, Diane Keaton, and Robert Duvall. Mm-hmm didn't look like themselves until I knew who they were. And right. then once I knew who they were, they looked like their current selves in the movie. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like every time Tom Hagen showed it back up on the screen, after I figured out for sure that was Robert Duvall, all of a sudden he was present day Robert Duvall yeah. every time I saw him. Like he was no longer the young blonde Tom. He was current, older Robert yeah. Duvall. Same thing with Diane Keaton. I didn't recognize her face the first time Kay was on the screen. Her voice sounded a little familiar, but she was just this very young, attractive woman. Once I realized that was Diane Keaton, from then on, all I could see was Diane Keaton as I know her to be now. I think my brain is just wired weird. Yeah. Al Pacino is the one who looks very different in this, I think. Yes, he's very different. Uh, his face is different between young Al Pacino and older Al Pacino. Yeah. I can that. see it around the eyes now that I know. But he looks like somebody else to me, and I'm not sure who it is. <laughs> like, I kept thinking he looks so familiar, and I still don't know why. I, okay. I don't know who I thought he looked like. Because it certainly isn't Al Pacino. I haven't seen any of his movies. No, clearly not. And Al Pacino has been in some significant films, so... Yeah, and The Recruit is not one of those significant films. No, it's not. It just happens to be the only one I've seen. This means we've never seen Heat. No. Oh, we get to put Heat on the list. Terrific. Okay. That's a good film. All right. That's a good film. <laughs> While we're talking about actors, I just wanted to mention John Cazale, who played Fredo. He uh, was in five films in 1972, 74, 75, 77, 78. And I think all of the films were nominated for the Best Picture Oscar. And wow. he is then in archival footage in The Godfather Part 3, which was also nominated for Best Picture uh, because he actually passed away whilst filming his last film. Uh, they rearranged the uh, shooting schedule so that he could shoot all his sequences because he was uh, suffering from cancer, I think. And they knew he, he wasn't going to be around for too long. So they rearranged everything so he could get his sequences shot uh, with his partner of the time, Meryl Streep. And okay. that film was The Deer Hunter, which is another one of the great films. Which, of course, I haven't seen. I, I know you haven't seen, but that is that is, that is a truly great film. It's hard okay. and it's brutal and it has nothing to like about it. But it's so very, very good. Well, well, that's quite the endorsement. One of his other films, though, is Dog Day Afternoon with Al Pacino, which is terrific and is quite fun. So that that might be worth putting on the list uh, for, for a time later when we want something more enjoyable. Okay. Mm. So we've exhausted discussion on The Godfather. Uh, thank you, everyone, for sticking through us. We wanted to address some listener feedback that we've had, uh, some really good messages from you guys. 
we want to say thanks to Sunnydale adjacent Usagi Biker on Twitter, who said, following our conversation about sexy, sexy strawberries in Firefly's pilot, that strawberry is also slang for females who trade sex for drugs or drug money. Not sure that's Kaylee, if I'm honest, but when we also talked about it being uh, Willow and Buffy, that sounds quite on point. Yes. With that superb magic as drugs analogy. <laughs> that's all I'm going to say. Okay. Oh, long pause. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we also had a comment from a listener who expressed surprise at discussing the, uh, the longevity of the King James Bible on the Firefly podcasts. It made me wonder about the longevity of other religious texts. And a bit of Wikipedia searching tells me that there are scripts of the Torah that come from 600 BCE. And uh, the Quran entered the written form in the 7th century. Now, I don't know about modern versions, because obviously the Bible is older than the King James's version. So if anyone does have any more knowledge on when uh, other religious texts, the modern version of religious texts became uh, popularized, please do let us know. It's, it'll be really interesting to find out. If you want to get in touch and give us your comments on this or any other movie we've discussed, you can tweet at us on Twitter at EloquentGushing or using the hashtag PCDeprived to send us your thoughts. You can also email us at podcast at eloquentgushing.com or you can comment on this post on eloquentgushing.com. Individually, I'm at Mandy Kay. And I'm at Matthew Vos. Please also remember to rate and review us on iTunes. It's the number one best way to help people find the show. We'll be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived, where we'll be discussing Ghostbusters. Until next time, I'm Mandy Kay. And I am honored and grateful that you have invited me to your daughter's wedding day on the day of your daughter's wedding. <laughs>